It's the Mark Stein Show. weekend of April, Anzac Day, for our listeners in Australia, New Zealand, Tonga, the Cook Islands, across the Commonwealth Pacific, and observed in London at the Cenotaph and at the Australian and New Zealand War Memorials, the sunrise commemorations are always very moving. But if you're in Perth, the capital of Western Australia, they're off, cancelled at short notice by the WA Premier Mark McGowan, for yet another snap lockdown. Here you go, updated rules. I know this is hard to take, and I wish we didn't need to be doing this. But we can't take any chances with the virus. We just can't. From midnight tonight, people will need to stay in the Perth and Peel regions and won't be able to leave unless you have an exemption. There'll be four reasons to leave your house. These are work because you can't work from home or remotely, shopping for essentials like groceries, medicine and necessary supplies, medical or healthcare needs including compassionate requirements and looking after the vulnerable, and exercise with a maximum of four people limited, limited to one hour per day and masks must be worn unless it's vigorous exercise. Masks are mandatory from 6pm tonight. Unfortunately, Anzac Day dawn services will be cancelled in the Perth and Peel regions. I encourage everyone to take part in the driveway dawn service again this year. I will be doing that again. If you're wondering what the big ANZAC totaling CHICOM 19 lockdown was all about, well, well, Western Australia, that's a pretty big state, they had two positive cases in the quarantine hotel where everyone inside is already in quarantine, so why would you have to quarantine the entire city? Because we honour the bravery of Australian expeditionary forces halfway across the planet by cowering in a fetal position over two COVID cases in a sealed-off COVID hotel back home. And that wasn't even the most embarrassing ANZAC observance of the week. The government of New Zealand chose the run-up to a commemoration of Kiwi courage by announcing that henceforth it has decided that prudence requires it to be a semi-detached member of the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Alliance. That's the US, UK, Canada, Oz, NZ, the oldest intelligence alliance on earth prudence requires it to be a semi-detached member of the five eyes when it comes to matters relating to china china man china man friendly neighborhood china man spins a web Round the globe while you're calling Rand Paul transphobe. Look out, here comes the Chinaman. Is he strong? Listen, bud, he's got Wuhan infusion blood. 
Is he cruel? Ask a Uyghur global Muslim complaints and eager they dig. Don't mess with the Chinaman. In the chill of night, in your best guarded labs, it's your copyright. But he's in and he grabs Chinaman, Chinaman. Hong Kong's gone up next Taiwan. Can he buy anyone? Let's ask Mr. Joe Biden's son too late. Turns out the guy you prayed for Already bought and paid for He's just a Chinaman Okay, okay, that's enough of that Chinaman, Chinaman Hong Kong's gone up next New Zealand All while the moth-eaten old sock puppet in the White House Presides over his Earth Day climate summit And his... Climate Tsar, the one and only John Kerry, gives a live-streamed YouTube keynote address to the summit. That when Steve Malloy of Junk Science tuned in to have a laugh at, that John Kerry keynote address was being watched by 23 people out of 7 billions of us on this earth. You'd think more than 23 people would want to watch the suicide of a superpower. How often does that come along? with the opportunity to watch it in real time on a John Kerry keynote address. Such a world is a challenge for the many non-superpowers out there. Apropos China and the Five Eyes and the decision by New Zealand to step back from active participation with respect to Beijing matters. The Kiwi Foreign Minister, Nanaya Mahuta, put it this way, it's not getting any easier to be a small country, unquote. Well, wait a minute. The point of being a member of the Five Eyes is that you're a small country that enjoys the benefits of a relationship with larger ones, uh, very powerful ones. In this case, the global superpower in Washington, your former imperial masters in London, a protective regional power in Canberra, and uh, what's the fourth one? Oh, yeah, Canada, Canada. And yet this small country's fear of Beijing outweighs its alliance with the US, UK, Australia and Canada. Gee, it's almost like these craven Kiwis have calculated that Chairman Xi means it and Biden, Boris, Justin and ScoMo don't. You remember my old chum Alexander Downer, former High Commissioner in London? Uh, he said he had a drink with George Papadopoulos at the Kensington Wine Rooms because he, Downer, was such a staunch believer in the Five Eyes Alliance. Well, it's down to four eyes now. Uh, it's getting like Agatha Christie. And then there were none. We're interested in Chinese penetration of the West, and we cover it in honor of Congressman Eric Shagwell, who found himself accidentally penetrated by Fang Fang. It's Eric Swalwell's Chinese penetration of the day. Your Chinese penetration of the day on Monday, Yu Zhu was sentenced to 33 months in U.S. federal prison. 
this follows the sentencing of his wife, Lee Chen, a few weeks ago to 30 months in federal prison. Yu Zhu and Lee Chen are U.S. citizens born in China who were sent to America by Beijing and were on the payroll of Chairman Xi's State Administration of Foreign Expert Affairs and the National Natural Science Foundation of China. Uh, Yu, Zhu and Li Chen were employed by the Elite Research Institute of the Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio and stole at least five exosome-related trade secrets tied to the identification and treatment of a number of pediatric medical conditions. They were convicted of wire fraud intended to facilitate the transfer of research and technology to the Chinese government. Assistant Attorney General John Demers, the head of the Justice Department's National Security Division, says, quote, This successful prosecution should serve as a warning to anyone who seeks to profit from pilfering hard-earned U.S. trade secrets. If you say so, uh, but in a couple of years, Yu Xu and Li Chen will be out of jail and they'll still be U.S. citizens because your half-wit federal government gave citizenship to a couple who were very obviously Chinese spies from the get-go. How many other entirely obvious Chinese spies with U.S. citizenship are now out there. And how many more will join them during the two and a half years Yu Zhu and Li Chen will be in jail? Speaking of the Department of Justice, we have exciting news of the Durham report. Oh, wait, no, I didn't say that excitedly enough. <clears throat> the Durham report! 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 Previously on the Durham Report, it was reported... Oh, no, hang on, hang on, hang on. I've gotten so excited, I've forgotten that we need the special Previously on the Durham Report intro. Previously on... The Durham Report! The Durham Report! The Durham Previously on the Durham Report, as we reported here on our Durham Report Watch Update Watch, in his investigation into the dirty, rotten, stinking, corrupt Department of Justice and FBI, putting the most powerful surveillance tools on earth at the service of the Democrat Party and against their political opponent, 
Uh, as we reported, John Durham was getting ready to bring criminal indictments within six weeks. Uh, we reported that on our March the 9th show. So uh, six weeks, let me see, March the 9th. Uh, April the 9th, uh, April 16th, April 23rd. Uh, so that would be uh, today. And yet there are no criminal indictments. But we know John Durham is the most thorough investigator on Earth, so he's probably just dotting every T and crossing every I before the DOJ Public Relations Department redacts all the I's and T's. The fact that we have no indictments just goes to show how thorough John Durham is. Back in 1944, I remember Durham walking out the door. Mama told me he would get him for sure. He would get him. Comey, Clapper, Brandon, Struck, and Steel. Now I'm gonna read old Durham soon. I'm gonna read old Durham soon. indictments, but we do have exciting breaking news on the Durham report. CNN has reported that John Durham's office has started arranging witness interviews. But the Washington Times cautions that, quote, for Republicans, that may be too little and too late. Don't be ridiculous. For Republicans, there's no such thing as too little and too late. The Republicans are the party of too little and too late. The Washington Times adds that, quote, coronavirus restrictions and bureaucratic red tape hampered the investigation, which is now entering its third year. But all the same, I don't quite get it. In early March... Early March, John Durham was about to bring criminal indictments. Now he's started arranging witness interviews, not hold the witness interviews, not interview the witnesses, not even arrange the witness interviews, but start arranging the witness interviews, a process that could go on some time. But if you were planning on bringing criminal indictments in March, wouldn't you do the witness interviews first? before starting to plan to arrange them for late May, mid-June? Nah, nah, nah. That's just what they'd be expecting him to do. That's why Durham makes the big bucks. That's why he didn't make the mistake of waiting till March of 2020 to let coronavirus restrictions hamper his witness interviews. He let coronavirus restrictions hamper the investigation way back in April 2019, for a full year before the coronavirus actually arrived. Because John Durham knew conducting witness interviews in the first year before the pandemic kicks in is the sort of rookie mistake those deep staters would be expecting from him. My sources tell me that Durham is already talking privately 
about arranging the scheduling of a Zoom conference to plan the arranging of the scheduling of a criminal indictment, drafting session and yoga retreat may be as early as the fall. Buckle your seatbelt and don't touch that dial. for another Durham Report Watch update on The Mark Stein Show. The year is 2073 and a man and his grandkids attempt to navigate a post-apocalyptic world years after a great plague wiped out much of the population. No, this isn't a dispatch from the 53rd year of our two weeks to flatten the curve, but a glimpse at Jack London's novel, The Scarlet Plague. The Scarlet Plague is the latest addition to Mark Stein's Tales for Our Time. Tune into Stein Online nightly as Mark serializes this timely novel. Mark Stein Club members can listen to this latest tale in the entire back catalogue of nearly four dozen by going to www.steinonline.com. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. Last week I read a piece by William McGonagall, acclaimed as the all-time greatest bad poet. If you don't know William McGonagall, well, he said all his life that he was born in 1825 in Edinburgh, Scotland, But there's some evidence he may have been born in County Donegal, Ireland. But that's the point. He's so bad that two countries want to claim him as their own. While working as a weaver at a mill in Dundee, he liked to entertain his fellow workers with recitations from Shakespeare. So they booked a theatre to star him in the title role in a production of Macbeth. But he became convinced the actor playing Macduff was jealous of him and out to get him. So on the big night, he refused to die in the final act. Uh, So it was uh, Macbeth with a happy ending. And after that, he decided to focus on poetry, which is why last week we wound up featuring his memorial poem for Prince Leopold, Duke of Albany. And I read the first half about... uh, Leopold's somewhat uneventful life, not his fault. He had haemophilia, which caused his early death and thus caused the poem. Uh, And listeners so enjoyed Mr. McGonagall's duff scansion and me trying not to get tripped up by his clunky arrhythmic couplets and the flat, unpoetic language with no writer's eye for imagery or metaphor that we were overwhelmed by requests to do the other half of the poem... (laughs) which is uh, an even more flat account of His Royal Highness's funeral. So here we go. As I said, bum scansion, no poetic language, uh, but he liked to rhyme, and yet here even the rhyme scheme sort of falls apart, and in one couplet he just dispenses with rhyme altogether. But do keep an ear out for one of my favourite lines, they carried their sidearms by their side. Amazing. 
I don't ever think I've seen sidearms at the side, have you? Whatever next. Uh, written by William McGonagall in 1884, the conclusion of The Death of Prince Leopold. "'Twas on Saturday the 12th of April in the year 1884. He was buried in the royal vault, never to rise more, until the great and fearful judgment day, when the last trump shall sound to summon him away. When the Duchess of Albany arrived, she drove through the royal arch, a little before the Seaforth Highlanders set out on the funeral march, and she was received with every sympathetic respect, which none of the people present seemed to neglect. Then she entered the memorial chapel and stayed a short time, and as she viewed her husband's remains, it was really sublime. While her tears fell fast on the coffin lid without delay, then she took one last fond look and hurried away. At half-past ten o'clock the Seaforth Highlanders did appear, and every man in the detachment his medals did wear, and they carried their side-arms by their side, with mournful looks but full of love and pride. Then came the Coldstream Guards headed by their band, which made the scene appear imposing and grand. Then the musicians drew up in front of the guard room and waited patiently to see the prince laid in the royal tomb. First in the procession were servants of his late royal highness, and next came the servants of the queen in deep mourning dress, and the gentlemen of his household in deep distress, also General Duplat, who accompanied the remains from Cannes. The coffin was borne by eight Highlanders of his own regiment, and the fellows seemed to be rather discontent for the loss of the prince they loved most dear, while adown their cheeks stole many a silent tear. Then behind the corpse came the Prince of Wales in field marshal uniform, looking very pale, dejected, careworn and forlorn. Then followed great magnates, all dressed in uniform, and last but not least, the noble Marquis of Lorne. The scene in George's chapel was most magnificent to behold, the banners of the Knights of the Garter embroidered with gold. Then again it was most touching and lovely to see, the Seaforth Highlanders' inscription to the Prince's memory. It was wrought in violets upon a background of white flowers, and as they gazed upon it their tears fell in showers. But the whole assembly were hushed, when Her Majesty did appear, attired in her deepest mourning, and from her eye there fell a tear. Her Majesty was unable to stand long, she was overcome with grief, and when the Highlanders lowered the coffin into the tomb, she felt relief. Then the ceremony closed with singing lead kindly light, then the Queen withdrew in haste from the mournful sight. Then the Seaforth Highlanders' band played Lockerbur no more, while the brave soldiers' hearts felt depressed and sore. And as homeward they marched, they let fall many a tear, for the loss of the virtuous Prince Leopold 
they loved so dear. A poem from me to you, after a fashion and lousy scansion and erratic rhymes by William McGonagall, The Death of Prince Leopold. I warned that the AABB rhyme scheme fell apart, and I love that verse in which it sounds like they're AABB off rhymes, false rhymes, but in fact they're ABAB identities, no rhyme at all. The Prince of Wales's uniform is paired with everyone being dressed in uniform, and the Prince of Wales looking forlorn is paired with the Marquis of Lorne, uh, the former Governor-General of Canada, as I'm sure I don't need to tell you. OK, that's enough, McGonagall, and I do promise you that in May, both for our audio and our video poems, we'll be returning to the good stuff. Mark's mailbox is on the air. James Driscoll, a Mark Stein club member from Nevada, writes... Uh, It's so interesting reading your older observations, which were also mine, in today's environment. There is definitely a willful desire to destroy the evil West. You know the players in this game of destruction better than most, and your way with words conveys it superbly. But I often wonder who is behind all this. There has to be an individual or a very small group, less than 50, that factually control this decline? Is it the Davos attendees or a controlling group behind them? Are they just the semi-visible faces? Watching society crumble is not soul-strengthening activity. Seeing the liberal elite supporting criminals, and this is not new but ever more evident, is very telling in what they want for the future, more criminals, which is what they are anyway. Criminals protect criminals. I would love to hear your thoughts My conclusion has always been that their minds are somehow connected to a great liberal thought cloud, a groupthink reservoir, which sounds nutty, but honestly, I have no other explanation. How can seemingly intelligent people behave as one? They're interchangeable, like robots. Next up, plug him in. Thank you for that, James. As long-time listeners know, I'm not into conspiracy theories. You'll have to go elsewhere for that, although we've uh, had a bit of it in the comments in the last couple of days, up to and including space aliens at Roswell. And I ain't into that because then there's no point to anything. If the world is being run by secret, all-powerful space aliens, uh, then this show is a waste of my time and yours, and I might as well go sit on the deck and write that opera I've always wanted to write. It's true... As I remarked of all the big shots in the Davos Great Reset video a few months back, that what's striking when you look at one after another is that none of them are accountable to the people, except at some point in the hopefully distant future, uh, the Prince of Wales, whose executive authority over Britain, Canada, Belize can only be exercised through the people's representatives in his various realms. And I've learned since the Duke of Edinburgh's death that Americans are chippy about monarchy, but are far less resentful of all the unelected panjandrums in their own lives, from Fauci uh, to John Kerry. That is an odd phenomenon. But before we get to the globalists at Davos or any other secretive group, I'd put it this way, James. Why would you expect us to be anywhere other than where we are right now? Um, James refers to a great liberal thought cloud, a groupthink reservoir. Well, you know what that is? It's the education system. I said on Fox News primetime a week or two back, every red state is full of deep blue school districts. 
which is why all those rock-ribbed conservative governors find themselves groveling before trans fanatics. If you have two or three generations raised in that system, why be surprised that A, they know nothing of their own civilizational inheritance other than that they hate it, and B, into that void has been poured vile nonsense such as critical race theory that is now supported by everyone from the White House and the federal bureaucracy and the US military down. That's your space alien body snatchers hiding in plain sight uh, while so-called conservatives never play for any of the turf that matters and then wonder why they've lost the country. On Fox News primetime, Newt said to me that the education system was our biggest structural weakness. Um, I said that a decade ago in After America, but small ball conservatives think you can do nothing about it and still drag a Christie gnome across the finish line every couple of years. Just to repeat, before we, before we put it all down to space aliens or globalists, there are individuals. It's not one man, it's not 50. But there are all kinds of people who are straight, absolutely straightforward around the planet about where they want the world to go and how quickly they want to get there. Let's start with Chairman Xi. Uh, let's start with uh, some of those big Islamic uh, power brokers. But they can only do that. They're doing that as opportunists, opportunists. Uh, so just to repeat, look at the education system this last half century, a field conservatives don't even compete on. And after two, three generations of that, why would you be surprised where anywhere other than where we are right now? I was in the mood to go to the movies to see a big picture on a big screen with all that big Dolby digital surround sound. So I asked my youngest uh, what the latest was on the new James Bond film, and he said it has now been put back to the autumn. It's supposed to open September the 30th in London. That's over a year and a half late uh, because of the Chicom 19. Uh, but my kid says they're uh, now having to take out some of the product placement because the product deals are now null and void. So they're using CGI uh, to replace the placed products with uh, newly placed products. Uh, after the last postponement from last October to this April, the world's second largest cinema chain, Cineworld, went belly up and closed all its theatres, saying they'd just been hanging on for 007 to save them. Uh, and for once, he didn't. Aside from the COVID, a further complication is that the new distribution deal with MGM and Universal is performance-related. Uh, so those guys have to figure out uh, how to open this without opening so weak that they lose the franchise for future installments. Anyway, as a result of all that, if this thing ever opens, it will be the longest gap, six years, between Bond films ever, except for the gap between Timothy Dalton in Licence to Kill and Pierce Brosnan in GoldenEye. And they're closing in on that record very fast. Uh, anyway, that, uh, th that uh, recollection of Licence to Kill took me way back. <laughs> Yes, 
Bond is back after his friend and CIA agent Felix is brutally fed to the sharks. 007 quits Her Majesty's Secret Service to have his revenge on Sanchez, the evil Latin American drug baron. I suppose James Bond could have stepped out of your average milk tray or martini commercial. He still likes his shaken, not stirred, uh, the drink that is, not the chocolates, and his tux is great, a real classic, none of your fancy frills and wing collars. But the British West Indies has changed a great deal since his first screen adventure, Dr No. Now the hundreds of tiny, unpopulated islands are covert staging posts for drug shipments from Latin America. And in his 16th film, Licence to Kill, Bond is up against the ultimate drugs kingpin, Sanchez. I want you to know this is nothing personal. It's purely business. <laughs> and so saying, he drops Bond's friend Felix into the shark tank on his wedding night and ships him back to the Americans with an explanatory note. He disagreed with something that hit him. Immediately, Bond sets off after Sanchez, assisted by an undercover CIA agent. Unfortunately, he's forgotten to fill up his motor launch. Out of gas. I haven't heard that one in a long time. Well, they must have hit the fuel line. Look, I'm going to need your help. You're going after Sanchez, aren't you? Will you help me? How many men have you got? Just you and me. Yes, they're on their own. This is a personal vendetta, and helped only by Pam and a suitcase containing $4.9 million. He's obviously on a different pension scheme from Peter Wright. He goes to Isthmus City in a fictional banana republic after the man who mangled his friend. This isn't business, it's purely personal. Well, no John Barry music this time, but Cubby Brockle is still at the helm, albeit surrounded by comparative newcomers. It's John Glenn's fifth Bond film as director, and Timothy Dalton's second in the title role, supported by Carrie Lowell as Pam and Robert Davy as Sanchez. But despite the infusion of new blood, surely after 27 years, the series must be running out of steam. Yeah, what do I know? Here we are a third of a century later. That reference to Peter Wright is a bit obscure now, but he was an MI5 agent who'd retired to Tasmania. And as I uh, hinted at there, he needed to bulk up his savings with an explosive memoir called Spycatcher that the British government was anxious to suppress. And Wright was represented in court by a very clever barrister, the future Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. And whatever one feels about uh, Turnbull as PM, and you know my thoughts, uh, he was brilliant in court, in that case, and he kicked serious government butt. Anyway, joining me to talk about Licence to Kill in 1989 was John Sessions, a brilliant comic spirit, a terrific impressionist, but with a voluminous range of references, cultural references, to back it all up and underpin his wit. He, uh, he, he was marvellous in the improv show Whose Line Is It Anyway?, he died at the end of last year, too young, nothing to do with COVID, but just a heart attack out of the blue. And I never got around to noting his passing on our last call, so here he is, shooting the breeze with me, re-licensed to kill. Well, it lives up to previous glories and surpasses them. I say unqualified, the best, absolutely the best Bond film, because the plotting and the dialogue the whole storyline has caught up with the technology and the whole thing is is made realer 
there's so many new factors there, but they're not just new motorbikes that turn into toothpaste tubes, you know. And Timothy Dalton is terrific as Bond, and these wonderful sort of rifle barrel eyes. Is he different in any way from his predecessors? I mean, what do you think makes him a, a, a better Bond? Well, he's, he's playing it for real. I mean, towards the end of the Roger Moore era, the thing was becoming high camp, and he was basically a man with chocolates and roses. He was terribly sort of charming and everything. And then uh, he could still do karate. Whereas this Bond, because Timothy Dalton is a good actor, and a classical actor, a very good voice and all that, um, he can invest, sort of follow that car lines with more than just plank He-Man. Well, this is the big factor which we're talking about, you know, that this is the revenge Bond. You know, Bond is not just simply doing the job. This private vendetta of yours could easily compromise Her Majesty's government. You have an assignment, and I expect you to carry it out objectively and professionally. Then you have my resignation, sir. We're not a country club, 007. He's on his own and going it alone. Yes, James Bond meets Jacobean tragedy. It's revenge tragedy. Well, John, it's, it's, it's not just Bond. There's also the evil mastermind uh, he's pitted against. Uh, what, what did you make of this one? Well, I thought he was extraordinary. I mean, this is a fully rounded villain. I mean, he's, he's the Yago in Richard III of the Bond canon. He has this bisexual element to him. He's the satanic Bond, had Bond gone to flamenco classes, yes. And, yeah. he, and eaten too much chocolate or pizzas as a kid because he's got very bad skin. <laughs> yes, that's but uh, well, that's the whole thing, you know, if you're a bad guy, it always helps to have a bad skin, you know. There's a bit more. They're actually investing what just seemed like a, an old, sort of, that awful prejudiced old man, Ian Fleming's sort of <laughs> horrible right-wing stories. They're using it as... Um, a framework upon which to make really good all-rounded adventure stories. They aren't just ciphers anymore, they're really good characters. Does that extend to the women? Because for 25 years now we've been used to these women like uh, Tiffany Case and Pussy yes. Galore and he goes around sort of slapping their bottoms yeah. a lot of the time. Well there's the scene in Goldfinger when uh, Bond's at the poolside and Felix Leiter comes along. Different Felix Leiter as it always is of course. I think he had a metal arm in that one and uh, Bond has to talk business with him, and he's with one sort of slinky Kim Novak-eyed sort of girl who stands up and he goes, Scram, men's talk, and slaps her bottom, and off she goes, which, you know, unbelievable. But we, as you know, in this picture, there's this sequence where um, a young American CIA agent girl, there's always the two girls, there's the dark, sultry girl, and there's a, the wasp girl here, and uh, they have to work together, and she has to be his secretary, and of course she doesn't like this. I'd like a case of champagne, Bollinger R.D. Certainly, senor. If I could ask you to sign the registration cards? No, my executive secretary, Miss Kennedy, will take care of that. It's Ms. Kennedy, and why can't you be my executive secretary? <laughs> we're south of the border. It's a man's world. So we're still back in that chauvinistic thing, but only slightly more wittily put across. I, I think what, what makes him more interesting than, say, the Roger Moore is that you feel this is some kind of real man who's been squeezed into a tux and that he's kind of... He yes. has to break free of the tux. Well, both the villain and the hero are believable, which makes this a lot of the technological panegyrics, which are as good as ever, that bit better because you're buying them a little bit more rather than saying, oh, here's the next silly circus trick. People who think, oh, darling, it's very wrong to like a Bond film because he's terribly, terribly sort of right-wing and all that sort of stuff. And this just simply doesn't apply in this picture. I'll say again, I think it's the best Bond film ever. Well, there you are. John Sessions and me on Licence to Kill. What do we know? It was the film that almost killed the Bond franchise. The original title was Licence Revoked 
And then they discovered that Americans associated that phrase with losing your driving licence and they had no desire to see 007 get pulled over for doing 42 in a 35 zone. It did the worst box office in the US of any Bond film ever and for all the reasons John Sessions liked it. Uh, Dark revenge tragedy and all that. And so there was more riding on GoldenEye six years later than on any other Bond film until... uh, Well, this new one, if it ever opens. I don't like to think of 007 surviving all those Soviet machinations through the entire length of the Cold War and then the Chaikoms taking him out with the kind of virus Bond would have liquidated uh, with a retargeted space laser after running around the hollowed-out volcano for 20 minutes. Incidentally, if you're bristling at those quote-unquote right-wing references John made, to 007 and Ian Fleming. Uh, Well, uh, John Sessions ended his life as a UKIP voter who said Nigel Farage, quote, talks more sense than the rest of the politicians put together. Uh, He spoke publicly about abolishing the European Parliament. That's how uh, serious John Sessions became about his UKIP affiliations. Uh, Late in life, Uh, John became a rather good character actor as uh, Lord John Russell in the Queen Victoria telly series and uh, the detective chief inspector in the police procedural Loch Ness. But that's not how I uh, think of him. I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, As I said, John Sessions used to do these improv shows, which were all the rage uh, on telly for a while, and stage, uh, in which the audience would call out the name of a celebrity and historical incident and a uh, type of fruit, and you'd instantly come up with a side-splitting comedy sketch uh, about those elements. So one day, I was invited to lunch at the Groucho Club in Soho by the producer Lawrence Myers. Uh, Lawrence did that almost two real Judy Garland biopic with Rene Zellweger that came out uh, just a few weeks before the COVID hit. And Lawrence uh, slid across the table a script he wanted me to do a little play doctoring on. And it uh, was a musical about Admiral Nelson's great love, Lady Hamilton, that Marlon Brando had come up with during one of his Tahitian sojourns. And Lawrence had lined up Michael Caine's beautiful and exotic wife Shakira to star in it, although she didn't seem the most obvious uh, Lady Hamilton uh, to me. But then um, Michael, Michael Caine, uh, objected to all the nude scenes featuring Shakira, so it needed a bit of rewriting, and uh, Marlon had jibbed at this, uh, so Lawrence wanted to know if I'd agree to clean it up and let Marlon get all the credit. And my reaction after listening to all this was, Marlon Brando writes musicals. And Lawrence said, yeah, but he's not the easiest bloke to get hold of in a hurry. And he slid over his business card, which was premium quality antique white stiff card uh, with Marlon Brando written in a beautiful embossed script, that gold embossed script that sat way up off the card. And uh, there was not another word on the card. No phone, no fax, no P.O. box number. Uh, But the words Marlon Brando did look fantastic on the card. So I tucked the script of uh, Lady Hamilton the Musical by Marlon Brando under my arm. And on the sidewalk outside, 
I run into John Sessions just heading into lunch, and he says, "Oh, Mark, what are you doing here?" And I say, "I've just been pitched a musical about Lady Hamilton, written by Marlon Brando and starring Michael Caine's wife Shakira." And he laughs and claps me on the shoulder and says, "In all my years of audience participation improv, I've never been thrown anything that good. We should plant you in the audience." And so I show him the script. Uh, with the writer's credit on it, and he goes, "Oh, that's very clever. A brilliant mind and a terrific laugh." The late John Sessions. One other license to kill connection. I mentioned uh, the 007 was pitted against the villain Sanchez, and John kept going on about Sanchez's pitted skin. Years later, that Bond villain turned up on the Mark Stein show, not to plot world domination. But to sing Cole Porter, here's Robert Darwin. Uh, you're going to do a Cole Porter song. This song is uh, 79 years old. And the story is that when Cole Porter, who had everything, he had a magnificent life, uh, he, he was a fabulous socialite, he glided around the world, he was wealthy, he had everything. And uh, one day in 1938, he had a terrible horse accident. He was out riding. Uh, he had an accident, the horse rolled on him and crushed his legs. And as he lay there waiting for someone to find him in the woods, it is said that he wrote uh, the lyric to this song. Mm. And this is the, the great romantic question whenever you meet someone. Is it, is it just a moment of infatuation or is it at long last love? Robert Darvey. Simply a shock Is it that good turtle soup Or is it merely the mock Is it the cocktail This feeling of joy Or is what I feel The real McCoy Is it for all time Or simply a lark Granada I see For only Asbury Park Is it a fancy Not worth thinking of Or is it at long Last love Is it an earthquake Or simply a shock Is it that good turtle soup or is it merely the mock? Is it the cocktail, this feeling of joy? Or is what I feel the real McCoy? Is it for all time or simply a lark? Is this Granada I see or only Asbury Park? Of, or is it at long? Is it at long? 
for the band. <laughs> Robert Darby, swinging with the Mark Stein show band under Eric Harding. See you in a few hours for the latest episode of our current tale for our time, The Scarlet Plague by Jack London. Have a great weekend. Make sure they give you the good turtle soup and not merely the mock. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. Reserved.